0: Hey guys, in this episode I sat down with Gemma Jennison. She is a registered mental health professional and after losing her friend to suicide, she has created the Man Down program. This episode is extremely fucking educational if I'm honest and very eye-opening. We touched on the fundamentals of mental illness, what helps those that are struggling with their mental health and her insights from working in the industry. Well yeah, thank you so much for coming on. No, thank you for having me yeah really appreciate you coming on um it's great to just like chat as well and just find out a bit more about man down program why yeah. it was founded um mm-hmm. what you guys do um and then just talk some like, other topics as well um, okay i cool. think you know i think there'll be a lot that we can discuss sort of throughout this conversation so um yeah so for those that don't don't might not know them what is the, the man down program
1: the man down program is um i suppose i always say the same thing and i think it it's the most concise way I can really explain what it is but it's a response and I suppose it's a response to um, seeing friends I know and love who are male attempting to take their own lives and who are males in the music industry and who are males who are othered by um, protected characteristics around race um, or you know other, other characteristics that I suppose we don't really go into at the moment. But um, mm-hmm. so men who who felt that their only option really in life was to attempt to take their own life rather than talk to someone or each other, predominantly each other. So Man Down came out uh, is, a, is a, a fiercely personal project to me because um, I started it as a result of two of my friends attempts to take their own life, one of whom was successful in that. And feeling that as a mental health nurse, and someone who operates within the hip-hop culture, I was being spoken to by men about their feelings, but men weren't talking mm-hmm. to each other. Yeah. Um, and I was seeing men struggle and living within the narratives or the, the, the stereotypical tropes within hip-hop about their identity, what they should be living up to, what they should be doing within hip-hop culture, and you know what they shouldn't be doing, which is showing emotion or showing what they perceive as weakness. So. Mm-hmm. I felt like I wasn't really doing enough for the people around me. I was I was good, effective at nursing people in my care, but I wasn't perhaps doing enough for the people around me in my community. So after um, my friend Martin took his own life, I set up the Mandown programme and the idea of the Man programme is to give people some training on having meaningful dialogue around mental illness and um, not just as a You'll be okay. Hashtag it's okay not to be okay, as a as a yeah. real sort of a real sort of dialogue in understanding what prevents men from talking and what prevents predominantly black males from talking you know, about their distress, their trauma, their upset, or what they're living with. So mm-hmm. um so in order to really capture what I was trying to convey with the training, I, I decided that I would try and capture the stories of the men that I was talking about. Yeah. Um, so we started to make a film. And um, in my head, it was a far easier process. It was pointing a camera at someone saying, tell me about why you feel this way. And then mm-hmm. that was it. But it's become this gigantic project where we've traveled up and down the country. We've interviewed you know, about 35 men and we've had to fundraise to do that. So fundamentally, the film serves as a sort of data collection. It serves as a a set of stories that I can show when we deliver training about why it, you know, why this is important. Um, Because what I can't do is take all of the men I've spoken to to training days and go, he's sad. Ask him why he's sad and what it means to be sad. And I think the men that were struggling the most were the men in the music industry and the men that were in you know, the phrase, I hate the phrase urban, it's like the worst phrase ever, because all it does is others people and puts them in a Mm. box, you know, oh, you're urban, you're not really our, you're not our bag, we don't want to deal with you. But in, you know, sort of like grime drill, hip hop, drum and bass, um, men just weren't talking and men were really struggling. And so Man Down really looks at men in the music industry. And what I've learned from creating the film and talking about, and listening to men's stories is that, a lot, a lot of people who are Black African or Black Afro Caribbean or Somali wouldn't talk to me about their experiences on really? camera, but would talk to me off camera. Sure. We do, we do have a good representation in the film, and it's important that it wasn't seen as tokenistic, that it's actually meaningful. Um, but I learned, I learned a lot from, from what they told me, but I also learned a lot from what they didn't tell me. And I, I always, I, I you know, I sort of knew that Black men didn't talk because. in in nursing in mental health nursing or in the field of mental health there is such a a huge stigma about black males and black males are 40% more likely to be detained under the mental health act you know rather than coming to services voluntarily and it's all down to perception so Mm -hmm. what, what I saw in the film and what I saw from people talking to me correlates directly with the care that people receive in, in mm-hmm. the NHS or in, you know, private sector. So the two things really married up. And um, so the film really is part of, is the reason that I can confidently say that I can train people in how to have meaningful conversations. Mm-hmm. And and the film really is the essence of the Mandown programme. So the programme itself would be taught to people in the music industry from the top, the upper echelons, um, right down to grassroots agencies and, and as a preventative measure, really, so it prevents young men coming into music or young people coming into music, um, you know, slipping into those pitfalls or making those mistakes that the older generation have, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so that's basically the Man Dying program. It's, you know, it's about it's a response, but it's also preventative, and it's it's going to talk about things that perhaps other training packages might not. It's specific to, to music and mental health. It's specific to men, but the training will be delivered to everybody because yeah. it's important that it's delivered to everybody but statistically it, it it's important to target men from the jump really because they're the ones that are really struggling and the suicide rates that you know they're not going to lie the suicide rates are are what they are, you know, men are in real distress, and particularly since COVID um, and the lack of creative outlet, the lack of, you know, gigs. And I, and I mean that for everybody, not just the people who are on the stage, but sound engineers, tour managers, A&Rs, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. it, it's it's impacted everybody. So it, there's been a real spike in cases uh, of people in the creative arts really struggling through COVID. So it COVID really put a stop to what we were doing, but also COVID gave us, I suppose, Gave us a a a sort of new reason to really continue on, Mm -hmm. despite how difficult that's been to do so.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's so that's so interesting and and so needed as well. Like it's amazing what you guys are doing and interesting what you're saying about how COVID's affected like the music industry because I think also like the audience as well. You know, like I think the community and in as a whole, like I think, has really really suffered. I think because it is such like a close-knit community, isn't it? And people go there for so many different reasons. And Mm -hmm. almost when you take that away, you know, yeah, it's almost like a, a big part of someone's life that's been been sort of just removed I suppose and
1: and, but conversely that there's an audience of people who want music and want music to be made because Mm -hmm. they're they're feeling a way about life you know they want they want new things they want something to look forward to release dates and stuff but Mm -hmm. that again you know that places pressure on artists to create and to put those things out because the expectations of fans fans are something that's become a bit of a consistent theme in the program in that they can't always meet those expectations you know whether it's a visual performance and people go to a live show or whether it's a live stream or whether it's a new record people seem to be writing more earnestly through um, through covid changing some of their musical styles and I think fans are are responding to that in two different ways you know positively in some and negatively in others and I think that again started to impact people's health and and expectations of themselves and their creative outlet and trying something new so you know fans fans rely on musicians fans rely on artists but fans also can be the demise of of creativity as well mm. particularly over social media you know i i often say you know people will put out a record and someone will go onto your your social media your instagram or your youtube channel and go yeah, but I preferred stuff you did in 1999. Can you put it back yeah, to then? Yeah, you know, sure, but yeah. they wouldn't. They wouldn't walk up to you in the street and go, "Oh, that record you just dropped was really bad." But I really liked what you did ten years ago. Can you do that again? Yeah. because it gives them a, a faceless platform to be able to mm. say these things and not mm. understand really the impact that might have on somebody behind mm. closed doors. You know, so Definitely. yeah, I, I, you know, as a music listener, as a record buyer myself, you know, I I try not to get myself into those. You know, conversations where I, I say something negative about what someone's done, I might not like yeah. it, but yeah. it's about being mindful about how your feedback can be perceived and what that means Absolutely. to them.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's a creative process, right? And if, if an artist tries something a bit different and yeah. they kind of put themselves out there a little bit and then they mm-hmm. get hated for it, that could, you know, knock their confidence and self esteem massively. Oh,
1: totally. But we get, you know, it's that whole thing about entitlement, you know, because you've been a fan of someone for, you know a long long time you know you've been a lifelong fan you know you then feel entitled to become part of their world or have or have a say in part of what they're putting out and and I think we need to really check ourselves on that level of entitlement because it's it's sort it's just not okay you know and artists can't really say that but I can because I don't care you know I don't care what you know I can tell people quite easily to, to put themselves you know, take themselves back out of people's comments and think about how that impacts on them. Because we Definitely. we live we, we live in silos, you know, we operate, you know, particularly now in COVID, I'm still working from home. So I'm still in this bubble where I think mm. I can say and do things and it won't impact people, but it does, you know, mm. it really does. Absolutely. So it, it's yeah, good to don't. pull those people about that behaviour, but they don't see what I see, I guess. You know, I mm. work with artists. I, I work with artists who I coach, you know people who are going to go back on stage after 18 months of not being on stage are now coming to me saying how do I do this mm. you know mm. so they I suppose the audience don't really see that but it's an important message to get out there I think
0: yeah definitely definitely yeah that's so interesting and so since starting uh, the Man Down program yeah. what have been like your bis- biggest le- learnings from it because like with with the where it's going, obviously, COVID's a huge factor in yeah. mental health. You know the rise in mental health statistics and everything else. But mm. like, you know, it, from me, from my perspective, I'm like, how are we still going so so wrong? You know, like how how is there still you know there's still a lot of support out there? There's still a lot of talk about it. Like we are saying, like the hashtag, it's okay it yeah. to be okay, kind of thing. But it's like okay, but that doesn't reflect in the statistics. So. No. like what's what's really been like your um biggest learnings from that and like the reasons why like that is okay kind of I what think
1: you I think the biggest the biggest learning curve for me is something I sort of already knew but I already I knew mm-hmm. as I knew as a as a voyeur into the world of mental health from charity sector perspectives or a helpline yeah. perspectives. but the biggest learning curve for me is is about tokenism Um, And and what I mean by that is, you know, there are several hashtags, there are several phrases that people bandy around every day. It's okay not to be okay, be kind, um, you know, those sorts of things are the things I can think of um, and talk to each other and all of that stuff. But, you know, the problem is those things are, you know, uh, anti-stigma, raising awareness, all of those things, they're like buzzwords in mental health. Yeah. But, you know, these things are, are, they're not actions Mm they're 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 tokenistic gestures that that might invite people to talk to you because they see you as an ally or they see you as a safe place so you putting those hashtags out mean that you are saying that people can come and talk to you that Mm -hmm. you will do something active that you will support somebody in getting the help they're gonna they're gonna need but Mm -hmm. um what i'm seeing a lot of is i'm seeing a lot of people writing that and then saying that they can't cope when people are offloading to them i'm seeing a lot of charities a lot i mean i i've seen a lot of people trying to monetize mental illness and distress mm-hmm. you know people are asking to co-work with the mandine program but having a monetized platform and mm-hmm. the monetized platform is nothing other than offering phone numbers offering signposting they're not doing the work they're not doing any counseling they're not doing any training they're not doing mm-hmm. any mental health first aid. they're not doing any of those things but you can pay to unlock Uh, A platform where you can use a forum to talk to other people or you can get Mm -hmm. helpline numbers that are available on the internet
0: yeah yeah
1: Yeah. Uh, I want to do some work with you because I think we're doing the same thing we're not doing the same thing Mm -hmm. I'm not hashtagging it's okay not to be okay and all that sort of stuff and other hashtags are available but I'm actually doing something it's a there's a difference between writing those things and doing something meaningful Mm -hmm. to change the landscape of what it is we're operating within and Mm. we are operating within a society that would rather um, use a well-being agenda in in a corporate situation so I don't know if you know this but if you're a corporate company you have a well-being agenda you get tax Mm. relief on that so lots of people doing mental health first aid and lots of people are getting tax relief on that so then what we're doing is we're generating this cohort of people who think because they've done two days of training they now become an expert in mental illness yeah I've, I've studied mental health since 2010 I qualified in 2013 as a nurse I'm doing a doctorate in mental illness and I am a lecturer in mental health and I'm a nurse still and I run man Down program and I have my own difficulties and I grew up in a house where there were lots of complex difficulties in mental illness and I would still not write on my LinkedIn that I was an expert in mental illness or mental mm. health you know, but there are lots of people doing that. There are lots of people doing motivational talking who profess to be mental health experts who are experts in their own experiences. Most Mm -hmm. definitely, we are all experts in our own experiences, but they are not experts in the field. And I think there's a danger of people using those people, believing that they're experts. So there's tokenism, there's hashtags, there's people saying reach out. And then when people reach out, people aren't there. There are people who are monetizing mental illness and distress um, and creating apps, platforms, forums. And those, you know, I worry about those forums. I worry about the content of those forums. I worry about the advice given out on those forums. But there is no policing of those forums or Mm -hmm. platforms. So I think my biggest learning curve is that there are a handful of people in the industry who, I wholeheartedly respect and wholeheartedly see doing amazing things and I I work with them and there are lots of other people who are perhaps wanting to do the right thing but perhaps don't have the skills the information mm-hmm. the know-how to, to perhaps do that safely so I I've really learned to kind of cherry pick who I work with and that's nothing to do with snobbery it's everything to do with keeping people safe and giving people the right information or being honest about not knowing what that right information is and saying let's find out together you know I don't know everything Mm -hmm. and I don't know every bit of you know counselling or or therapy that's available in people's different areas of the world or the UK even yeah so it's about understanding that you don't know everything and being honest about that and I don't see that that often you
0: Mm know yeah yeah definitely Uh, do you you think it's almost because of the world that we live in now where it's everyone wants to be seen as like a professional and a perfectionist and everything you know like i think with social media especially like it's it's often like a highlight right like it's like yeah highlights and the best bits um and do you think that that's often maybe the problem and and also going back to what you're saying earlier about Mm how yeah like people obviously it's almost like people are putting out these token gestures and there's yeah. nothing like in, inherently bad about that like that you know obviously they mean well by it yeah but, of course But yeah. then like when you kind of go further down it's almost like it goes so much deeper than that isn't it it's almost yeah. like that's like surface level and then would you say and then kind of like yeah. from that you kind of because i i feel like you know mental well-being yeah. I feel it's like a daily practice. It's something you have to do every day and and kind of not neglect. And yeah, totally. Um, yeah, and um, I feel with Mental Health Awareness Week and you know all this, there's so much like emphasis just put on like certain periods of time rather. Than, I think.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think those are the things I'm talking about, really. And I think it's really important to get a distinction between the two things. Mental Mm -hmm. health is different to mental illness. Okay, so we Mm -hmm. all have mental health. and What we do with our mental health is up to us, you know, the things that keep us safe. And it could be things like exercise, drinking loads of water, seeing friends, reading books, taking time out, doing mindfulness. Those things are things everybody in the world could do to help Mm -hmm. their mental well-being. But when you're telling somebody who's got a mental illness, to do those things, what you are doing is saying that you can fix something like mania with bipolar or mania and schizophrenia or psychosis or voice hearing. Those things, people aren't getting the distinction that you can't resolve those things by Mm -hmm. hugging a tree and doing a downward dog and drinking a green kale smoothie. That might be the things that keep you well mentally, like your mental Mm -hmm. well-being well, but Mm -hmm. if you are mentally ill with a severe and enduring mental illness, people aren't going to want to hear that you can wrap yourself in a blanket and do a mindfulness app because it's not going to resolve that that distress set that trauma set that Mm -hmm. you are in, Mm -hmm. you know, so the the dangerousness is not knowing that mental well being mental health awareness is completely different to mental illness and distress. Mm And often what we see is people talking about depression and anxiety and, you know, those discussions. But what we're not seeing is people talking about postpartum psychosis. We're not hearing people talk about Diogenes disease, which is, you know, excessive hoarding. We're not hearing people talk about Munchausen's or Munchausen's by proxy, which are now classified as fabricated illnesses we hear people talk about ocd because they like their net curtains neat we're not talking about ocd the intrusive thoughts and the way that people have to live with those and mm-hmm. it's more than just hand washing in a tidy house you know people go oh i'm so ocd because you put your shoes in a row by the front door that's not ocd ocd is a huge huge complex you yeah. know conversation and set of distresses um you know we're not talking about um we're not talking about people who uh have sexual disin- disinhibitions when they're manic through bipolar, we're not talking about people who hear command hallucinations from the TV. We're not talking about people who, you know, f- having command hallucinations or ideas of reference or any of those things. Those things are are too big for people who just wanna focus on anxiety and depression. And the, the world of mental illness is bigger than that, you know, mm-hmm. but that's all we're seeing. Mm-hmm. And then we're seeing the proponents of mental well-being, you know, the the chaos, drinking, smoothie making, downward dog facing, hug a tree cohort of people going, just hug a tree. OK, well, I'm manic and I've spent all of my money on my credit card and um, now I'm going to be put in hospital. I don't think that's going to fix me. And people aren't getting The two things are different. The two worlds are different. Mm -hmm. I don't work Mm -hmm. in mental health and mental well. I don't work in mental well-being. I work in mental illness. That's Mm -hmm. what we do, you know. So I think I think those are the conversations that are dangerous. And I think social media is, is a real double-edged sword because social media can be amazing social media can connect people who feel isolated by their feelings and their sensations but also social media can isolate people equally as much so i think social media has definitely got a place and it's definitely something that i use and definitely something that i think can be positive but there are real downsides to you not using it safely or not having safe conversations with people who are safe educated knowledgeable aware emotionally intelligent
0: mm-hmm. you know yeah, um, yeah
1: and you know even if you do do tokenistic gestures about mental health week or mental well mental health day and stuff it doesn't make you a bad person it doesn't mean that you're not informed it means that you're trying and trying mm-hmm. is the best that anyone can do we're all yeah. trying you know yeah, definitely. but um I think it's about bandying the word expert around which I really struggle mm-hmm. with
0: mm-hmm. you know yeah yeah no that makes sense that makes perfect sense um and so talk me through your PhD then so you um, okay yeah so you're currently doing a PhD right so
1: yes I am um,
0: yeah so so (laughs) tell me more about
1: it I started doing my PhD in 2017 and I started doing my PhD in um in film and mental illness I hated the way that mental illness was depicted in films predominantly horror films you know like the old asylums and the stabby Mm-hmm. A psychiatric patient. I mean, it was only about three years ago that Asda did a Halloween costume of an escaped psychiatric patient with a knife and a blooded gown. Um, so right. you know, I, I, I was seeing those, I was seeing those depictions, and I hated every single minute of it. Mm. But I also, I also hated the fact that film. There were certain films that were definitely about mental illness that people weren't really picking up on. So I started doing it about that, and then I started the Mandying program and completely changed my subject much to the much to the upset of my uh supervisory team for my phd they i think they all sort of needed to lie down in a dark room when i said i'm going to change my subject two years in um (laughs) so my phd now is about um black male experience black masculinity mental illness and Mm hip-hop so i'm looking at the, the correlation between my experiences as a nurse and seeing men come to a ward being judged Um, being sectioned because they were black you know that that's a nuanced conversation but that is particularly you know what I experienced I worked on a male psychiatric intensive care unit so the men that came there were too unwell to be nursed anywhere else so I saw that um, and I had an old boss that used to just tap me on the shoulder and go he's one of yours so I've got a chapter in my PhD called he's one of yours which what he means by that is is a young black male First presentation, we don't know him. We need to get collateral history. So, what I need to do is use what I know about hip hop and trainers to go and ingratiate myself into his life and to get all of the information from him by using what I know about hip hop. Mm -hmm. And my, you know, I always used to laugh about it and say, What if he's not into hip hop? You know, you can't assume because he's a young black man that he's into hip hop grind drill or whatever. Um, and they were like, of course he is, of course he is. So I used to start seeing these institutional racist stories yeah. about they must like this. Go and talk to like him stereotypes. About yeah, yeah, yeah. go talk to him about Jordans and, and Air Max 97s and, you know, and see if he break and he'll tell you anything about himself. So I... I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I hated that that was what my position was on the ward. To go speak to this guy. But then I had a good chat with somebody um, from the Black Studies course at my university, where I lectured, and he said, "But that that's a gift. You know, you were using information that you had about Black culture to to show allyship, to show you know a knowledge and to show you know shared experiences or shared knowledge." Um, and, and I've started to see it that way now, but I didn't at the time. I just saw mm. racism. I saw mm. stereotyping. I saw racism. I saw um, assumptions. So so my work, it really looks at like the way my experiences of, as being a nurse in, in mental health services saw institutional racism, but how institutional racism is apparent in all aspects of mental illness, even in the music industry. So I'm looking at racism, stereotypes. And living up to stereotypes in hip hop versus what it looked like to live up to stereotypes in the mental health world as well. So mm-hmm. it's a big piece of work. And, um, you know, there are lots of questions about, am I the right person to do this as, as a, uh, a white woman? Um, and I suppose I've had to overcome that um, by, by knowing that I perhaps am, you know, I operate in the hip hop world. I've been a hip hop promoter since I was 16. Um, and I'm a nurse and nobody else is really doing this work mm. so if I'm not the right person then who is so yeah so that's mm. my PhD is about that and it's huge that's
0: amazing it's really huge
1: yeah that's <laughs> Thank amazing. You.
0: yeah and and so t- so talk me through like in terms of um yeah like your learnings from that then so do you yeah. find that the reason why like black guys are struggling with regards to you know opening up and you know and and almost being sectioned and that kind of thing going that route towards it sort of thing do you think like there's still a huge amount of stigma there like do you think that's why like is that probably like the biggest barrier in terms of you know what yeah the the research I can
1: only really go on research because I can't I can't discuss what I've what I've talked about in the interviews with my participants yeah, sure, yet sure. because it's not published but um, from research what we know is that men are black men are st- statistically more likely to go through to um, mental health services through the judicial system so through criminal justice systems mm-hmm. they're unlikely to be brought in via their GP or primary care services because they're unlikely to go to those places right. um, and the reason they don't want to go to those places is because of this cultural discussions around how what black men should be doing in their community that they're the the figurehead of their families that they're Mm -hmm. you know that the communities are quite small and that any any information about their you know declining mental health will be shared or looked upon you know frowned upon or you know judged from wherever that may come from Mm -hmm. um so there's that and there's a there's an old social work um paper about it's called mad bad and dangerous about the perceptions of, of black men in in social care, but also in criminal justice systems and in mental health services, where the perception is that because men are black and, be, and because you know white people in social services and the judicial system don't know how to talk to black people because mm-hmm. there's no black representation in those services, particularly in the management or you know the upper you know the upper tier, so the the ivory tower, aptly named. Um, people aren't represented and heard culturally people aren't heard and respected culturally people's cultural competence is through the floor so you know I mean it's that it's that long old story about you know if a black woman speaks up she's an angry black female rather than being somebody who's just had a a, you know Mm. a miscarriage of justice or an unjust unfair treatment Mm. and that's called um it's called epistemic injustice so epistemic injustice is about believing the testimony of people or not believing the testimony of people because of where they've come from. Mm -hmm. So we can use the Me Too movement. So because women have come out and spoken about people who have been sexually abusing them or been sexualized towards them or raped them, what we get is oh well they're just hysterical women so we don't listen to that so we're just going to put that away and then it erupts into this major thing where people go we are going to be heard Mm -hmm. but because women women are hysterical and women aren't to be trusted and because the women in question aren't as rich or wealthy as the men in question they want money so they don't believe the testimony of the person because of who they are so in that instance it's women Mm -hmm. so that's part of the story you know we don't believe that um we don't believe these people because of who they are, we don't believe these people aren't violent because, you know, well, they come from an area, you know, I work in Birmingham, so if you come from Hansworth, Lazelles, Ladywood, Neutral's, you know, you can't possibly be mentally ill, but you can always be a criminal, you know, and then the other side of the um, epistemic injustice is the hermeneutic injustice, where a group or cohort of people don't have access to education to learn about getting themselves out of particular situations uh, and a really good example about that is you know the gay rights movement it was criminalized you were going to be put in prison if you were gay you couldn't get married it was against god but slow they they were they were ring-fenced away from having access to anything about law how to challenge that in high courts mm-hmm. when they got that information they took it to the high courts and won but they, it, they were shielded away from that and to mm-hmm. some degree that's what people in in working class areas people in Socioeconomically deprived areas are there's no access to education for them to get themselves out of it Mm -hmm. and unfortunately black people fall into both hermeneutic injustice and testimonial injustice so this is a tale as old as time and even we've had a mental health act review and an update of the mental health act in 2000 i think it was last year 2018 sorry but in 2021 simon wesley who did the review noted that there is still huge amounts of um in systemic racism in the NHS. Hmm. So we might know it exists, but what are we doing to change it? Yeah, yeah. You know, so so I suppose yeah. So I suppose basically black people are disenfranchised, despite the fact that in 2020 things started to change and the BLM movement became something that was more predominant and that the conversations became bigger and and more I suppose heartfelt, but more difficult and more contentious because even though the loss of george floyd brought these things about mm-hmm. these black people have been having these conversations for years and yeah. the frustration came out that we've been trying to tell you this you know mm-hmm. so but we're still operating within racism we're still living mm-hmm. in a racist country we're still li- we're still nursing in a racist society we're still looking at a racist criminal justice system so you know as as important as my paper might be you know the the conversations are bigger than me and bigger than what I'm writing about, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's that tokenistic thing. Simon Wiesni says, "Yeah, yeah, we can see racism is apparent in the NHS. Okay, so what are you doing about it? Mm. It's just a lot of, you know, yeah, a lot of shrugging. Yeah. They, they almost
0: don't know, know what to do. do in a way. No,
1: no, because mm. because they're part of the problem. You know, they're part of the problem. You're, you're having a you're having a review done by a group of white people. You're not you're not doing the review with a bunch of you know people from the services in higher mm-hmm. management who are black or Afro-Caribbean or, or you know, from any of other ethnic minority background because they don't exist.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, it runs really it runs so much deeper than the stuff I'm writing about, but I still believe what I'm writing about is important you know
0: yeah yeah definitely and so since since um you first started um you know so you said you back in like 2010 um yeah when you first sort of started out and so um have you seen that it's improved overall since then like or has it actually got worse like in terms of like mental illness mental illness support um yeah, yeah. like just the overall
1: It's got worse. You know, it's got worse. We've had lots of, yeah, lots of service closures, lots of day centres have been shut down. This predates COVID. Mm -hmm. So lots of day centres where people would go, people who were in the community who had severe and enduring mental illness or people who had illness or or of any type, would go to day centres and meet other people, do crafts, hobbies, learn skills, do cooking and stuff. Mm -hmm. We've lost a lot of those. We've lost a lot of youth service provision. We've also lost loads and loads and loads of drug and alcohol services. So that has become really problematic. We've got a huge problem in Birmingham with Spice um, and Black Mamba. um, And more commonly, I was nursing people who were high on Spice than I was people who were mentally ill. We have a bed shortage across the NHS. You know, we Mm. can't we can't we can't place or or put people in beds. you know in hospitals to care for them so we've I mean we're really lucky in Birmingham we've got a really phenomenal emergency assessment team we've got people we've got nurses in general hospitals we've got home treatment teams we've got community teams we've got um, home treatment teams for young people we've got the place of safety so if someone's in um, public and people believe them to be mentally ill or not Mm -hmm. very well um Mm -hmm we've got street triage that's police ambulance and a mental health nurse that will go out and triage and take that person somewhere safe to assess them but again what we're having difficulties there with is the the fact that police turn up
0: because yeah, it looks sure. like they're
1: criminalising somebody. Yeah, yeah. Some people don't have the best relationship with police. Um, mm-hmm. and historically, I mean, we're really lucky in Birmingham. The police have got a really good relationship with our trust and what we do in terms of mental health, but it's not the same everywhere else. You know, mm-hmm. it's really not the same everywhere else. And often people who are mentally ill get put in cells at the police mm-hmm. station to be assessed. And that starts the it starts so the it conversation a sudden, about yeah, are yeah, they a criminal sure. You know mm-hmm. so and the perception is if you're being taken away by a police officer that you've done something bad you mm-hmm. know so mm-hmm. um so i would say i would say in birmingham particularly because that's what i know best we're doing the best we can and we've we've got a really good response mm-hmm. but generally speaking nationally the incentive at the moment where the funding is is in early intervention early detection with young people mm-hmm. to prevent them from getting into services and to get them treatment and, yeah and you know to get them support but generally speaking it can take you months to get a talking therapy Mm -hmm. even years to get a talking therapy but it can take you five minutes to get a medication and actually you need to be doing both if you're really unwell if you're really depressed really anxious Mm -hmm. you need to have a combination of therapies to help you because you can't Mm -hmm. rely on medication forever you know that's that's not realistic Mm -hmm. um but access to services is is diabolical because we're just so short-staffed, we're so underfunded, mm. um, and we are underfunded. You know, mental health nursing is a real poor relation to other fields of nursing. We are the forgotten field, and we don't have a lot of money, and we don't have a lot of access. And a lot of the stuff that was working got shut down. Mm. So, mm. yeah. Um, and in terms of attitudes, people that you work with, you know, I think I think we're I think we're getting there. I think we're definitely getting there culturally mm-hmm. and I'm really grateful that I I nursed or nurse in Birmingham when it's so multicultural and it, yep. it's taught me a lot and I think <clears throat> I think that's something that we're really good at in Birmingham mm.
0: yeah no. but generally
1: speaking I don't think we're I don't think we're getting it right in mental illness at all I don't and, think and, we are. and
0: do you think that a huge a big part of so from like your studies and from what you've seen how much is how much of mental illness is related to and sorry if I'm like way off the mark like yeah I like a complete no I know what you're gonna say um,
1: you're gonna say societal aren't you yeah
0: like how much of it is is down to societal needs and how much of it is biological um okay because yeah and yeah I'll go on to another thing after but yeah I just just got thinking when you're talking that's all no
1: that's fine that's the question I get asked a lot and actually that it's a really important question because there are two sides to this in psychiatry we have the medical model where they believe that anything that is an untoward sensation so hearing voices for example is a really good one to think about Mm -hmm. there are people that hear voices that like hearing their voices okay Mm -hmm. that live with their voices that find their voices comforting yeah um but if you if you are a person that says that you can guarantee that you'll end up sectioned on an antipsychotic within minutes of saying that or disclosing that to somebody who is a consultant psychiatrist or a mental health nurse or whatever because okay. you shouldn't be hearing voices you shouldn't have that phenomena because that's not normal mm-hmm. so that brought about um, a, a discussion around um, uh, psychology and around um, anti-psychiatry and around you know, nature nurture and all of those sorts of things. So people hear voices, right? Lots of people hear voices. Lots of people live with their voices and lots of people like it. Lots of people live with voices but don't like it, and lots of people want help. But mm-hmm. the the critical psychiatry movement wants to know where did mental illness come from? There's a school of thought that says that antipsychotic medication can make people more mad, more dependent on right. services. Um, there are people who believe that. Um, mental illness is a societal thing so often when people come in with something like schizophrenia we ask if there's schizophrenia in the family because there was some research that mm-hmm. said it could be hereditary but there's lots of research to say it isn't hereditary mm-hmm. but yet yeah, the medical model relies on that set of set of evidence to say well you know it's hereditary so we're going to treat it and you it's likely if your parents had it you're going to get it which isn't necessarily true sure um but the medical model would Pathologize, label, diagnose, medicate, put you in hospital, take you out of hospital and do that same thing. Whereas critical psychiatry says, well, okay, so instead of saying, you know, what's what's wrong with you Mm -hmm. we're going to start asking what's happened to you Mm -hmm. we're going to start thinking about your childhood how you've grown up the world you've grown up in the society you've been around and then we're going to start to think about whether those things have created or caused any of these phenomena that you're experiencing Mm -hmm. whether it's distress or, or triggered by trauma but so the two models don't really like each other critical psychiatry is saying let's ask the person what's going on for them let's let's think about whether medication is really right for them or whether we can do something else. Let's think about whether they not want to take medication at all and whether they want to hear their voices and whether yeah. they're okay with that. Whereas yeah. the medical model is like, no, you shouldn't be hearing that. We're telling you shouldn't be hearing that. It's hereditary. It's in your family. You need to go to hospital. You need to have an injection of an antipsychotic medication because if you don't take your tablets, that's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So personally speaking, I veer more towards the critical psychiatry movement where I think about you know, it's not necessarily hereditary. Um, It could be learnt behaviour, it could be um, causation, it could be anything to do with how you've grown up, what you've seen, what you've witnessed. It could be, Mm -hmm. you know, your trauma set. If we talk about something like personality disorder, which a lot of people really don't like talking about, uh, personality disorders generally come about from a set of trauma or a distressing incident and then Mm -hmm. people's maladaptive, so poor coping strategies in, in life and how they get by so it could be drinking it could be drugs it could be you know being abusive violent or any of those things or it could just be not looking after yourself you know not eating properly and you know not being particularly nice to people you know there's lots of reasons why people go into those worlds or operate within those coping strategies mm. but we don't we rarely ask someone what's happened to them mm. we always say what's what's wrong with you and that puts the onus on the person to think that they've created these sensations these feelings you know or you know not necessarily voice hearing or or hallucinations but if people are manic or people aren't coping and people are using drugs and alcohol to cope Mm -hmm. what we're saying in the medical model is well this is your fault isn't it because you've created this or because Mm -hmm. your mum was mentally ill so therefore stands to reason it's hereditary you're going to get this mental illness whereas I think I think personally I can't speak for nursing as a whole because I'm I suppose I'm out on a limb a lot as a nurse because I'm not that keen on medication I don't think medication is always the answer I think it's the answer sometimes I think it's the answer a lot but I don't think it's always the answer Mm -hmm. but I do think we need to start having conversations around people's stories and people's histories Mm -hmm. so my research is using dialogical narrative analysis so I'm asking people to tell me the story of themselves I'm not asking them questions that are in interview form I'm asking them to talk to me freely about their experiences in life where they've grown up you know what they believe their distress is about why you know they struggle sometimes or why they have voice hearing or why they're manic or why they are depressed and don't eat or you know those things So Mm -hmm. we're asking stories and and for me that gives people free reign to talk about things outside of a a model of psychiatry that they're used to talking within Mm -hmm. so um, I think society has a lot to answer for Mm -hmm. and I think I think people's upbringings I think people's life experiences all play part in where people are at now in this stage of their life and I think if we get into the medical model where we're taking away the value of those stories. We're mm-hmm. just basically masking the issue with medication yeah. and and blaming people rather than and actually then, getting
0: down to the fundamental yeah. roots of like why you know they feel like that in the first place, kind of thing.
1: Exactly, mm. exactly. So we have a lot of you hear a lot of times when people come through mental health services. Oh, such and such has been admitted again. He's a revolving door patient. Okay, well sometimes people have been in hospital so long they become institutionalized the same way that they do if they've been in jail a long right, time. Okay. and and we have to answer for that we have to say what you know we've brought them into hospital so many times rather than actually get to the root cause of their illness and give them Mm -hmm. a real meaningful Mm -hmm. you know we don't use psychology that much we don't, you know, people don't get psychological input as much as they perhaps should. Mm-hmm. And I think if we did, we'd see less of those revolving doors. We'd build people's resilience and get people back into the community and, and build them up. But like I say, we've lost a lot of funding. We've lost a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. So we can't do that resilient stuff and, and, you know, mm-hmm. home support as much as we should be able to. If we did all of those things, we wouldn't see the same faces coming in and out of hospital. Mm-hmm. So um, an interesting thing to read about would be the power threat meaning framework, Um by Boyle and Johnson they're two female psychiatrists who've written about asking the question what's happened to you over what's wrong with you mm-hmm. and i found that really useful i often feel quite isolated as a nurse because i don't want to i don't want to restrain people and inject them i don't want to put them in seclusion rooms mm-hmm. I, I will if i absolutely have to and it's absolutely necessary and it's absolutely part of a therapeutic arrangement where what's going to happen is is for their best interest but I I struggle with those things and I have a conscience about those things and and I question it and I do it as a last chance saloon thing whereas sometimes it's the first thing people will do we've got to inject them okay well you know it's Hobson's choice really if you're saying to a patient they're being violent and aggressive because they're frustrated about being locked on a ward they can't see their friends they can't go out and smoke when they want they can't Mm -hmm. They can't do everything they want to do they can't eat the food they wanted to eat because we don't do that you know then what nurses say is oh you know they're, they're aggressive well no they're pissed off and they're angry and they're entitled to feel that way yeah but you know other patients so they go you can have these tablets to calm you down if you don't take these tablets we're going to give you this injection and when we give you this injection we're going to restrain you it's going to take five people to restrain you and give you it so you take one or the other mm. rather than saying Let's have a conversation about why you feel this frustrated. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. and I've seen it time and time again. And I have this real guilt about that, that I've mm. been part of that, you know. So, yeah, I think we could be doing better at asking about people's experiences, mm-hmm. you know, De- yeah. definitely. Yeah.
0: I think, I think that's often what I actually, I've, I've noticed that as well. So, I've loved ones that, um, Take like antidepressants and Mm -hmm. like you know and and at first it works and it's fine and then a few months down the line they don't work anymore and they go back and get a stronger dose and like it's almost like literally like the doctors just like oh quick fix we'll just give you some give you some tablets but like instead of actually sitting down and being like so what's actually going on you know like what's Mm. what's the core crux of like what's the reason why you're feeling this way in the first place you know and I, I feel yeah like especially in today's society where you know we're trying to just yeah get quick fixes for everything Mm. it's like oh
1: there isn't a quick fix though no
0: absolutely not it's in the process isn't it you know it's it's all in the process and it's all like you know like what you're talking about earlier you know like getting down to the fundamental roots of like what's causing it and um yeah the reason why i wanted to ask that as well have you heard of rat park in your in your studies no um so I don't know who the scientist was that that conducted this study, but basically someone put a, like a rat and they all put like a selection of rats in a in like a cage. One water yep. was just normal water. The other water was heroin water.
1: OK, yes, 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 you, yes, yes, yes. Have you heard this? Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah, about, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And then the and obviously the guy, the person that's in the cage, sorry, the, the rat in the cage on its own always picked the heroin like water and became like an addict and then died soon after yeah then they said well let's create rat park which is like a heaven for rats like you know they're free to roam anywhere they have like loads of food everything else they have heroin water and normal water and the rats more often than not chose the normal water and just like lived and like were happy and you know and everything else and yeah. like, it's just so interesting like you know like almost like having those." core fundamental needs of like connection, food, mm-hmm. water, exercise, you know, all these basic mm-hmm. needs that um yeah, I just thought it was really, really interesting. So that's why I was keen they, to they've done loads the... of
1: um yeah, they've done loads of stuff like that. They did they did one in a prison where everybody played a role is either the prisoner or the prison guard. Um and to, it was a social experiment to see if people would conform to those stereotypes and how they handled it. And the people oh, okay. that became the people that acted as prison guards I find it really difficult to get out of that character and out of that role and then took on these behaviours of, you know, locking people up, coercion, abuse, um, dominance. Yeah. And it it became something that they had to really undo quickly. But the people that were the prison guards were really violent, really volatile. um, And the people that were the, the prisoners were really badly abused really badly Blimey. abused all of those social experiments you know there's been ones where kids have watched images of, of toys being broken and hit with hammers and then they they other the other um, focus group for children that had just watched all of these lovely images of leaves falling from trees and ocean sounds and then they what they did was studied the behavior of the two different groups and the children that had watched violence to toys and, and violent you know Breaking toys became really volatile and violent to kids in their class, and the other kids became really sort of conformed and, and behaved well, and you know didn't challenge any sort of hierarchy. But the other children did. So yeah, there's loads so of social experts I know, yeah. but these were all done in like the sixties and seventies where there was absolutely no ethics a- attached to this at all. So you've done this to these children where they're behaving this way. You've done these to this prison guard where they're abusing people. Yeah. So not only are the prison guards now coming out of the experiment completely different people, people mm. that have been affected by them are completely different people. Mm -hmm. What have you done to undo this, Mm -hmm. you know? And and we've been used, humans have been used as experiments for God, as long as I can remember. I mean, things like MKUltra, you know, trying to, you know, when people were in the war and when people were fighting, you know, in the second world war and stuff, they would do things like, they would use like uh, psychotropic medications or hypnotics to medicate them so they couldn't recall or, or talk about what their experiences in war were and they couldn't report on it
0: oh, so right. yeah it's like
1: mind control stuff yeah which is, yeah mind control is used in something like stranger things you know where mm. i don't know if you've seen it 11 the, the child experiment is is psychologically brainwashed and into not believing that she has these powers and all that sort of stuff it's all Mm -hmm. about yes it's all about mind control but we've always been experiments we've always been guinea pigs and i don't see that changing Mm -hmm. you know
0: yeah it's very interesting it is interesting i think yeah like it's yeah super interesting what you say just about like yeah how it can literally stem from when people you know from like childhood you know childhood onwards and that's sort of like this the starting point it just goes to show like how important you know life experiences are and like life stories are to people and um and how that can you know put them on certain paths or and others or whatever it may be but the, the
1: the dangerousness of that as well thinking about that is is like things like freudian you know theory about childhood ego id super id and all of those sorts of things i mean you can go too far the other way and And started to have these bizarre conversations about sexualization between parent and child and stuff but certainly someone who is a psychodynamic author i think is really good is melanie klein who talks about childhood experience and trauma Mm -hmm. um and uh foucault and and those sorts of people who who acknowledge that actually the world you live in is going to impact on your personhood and Mm -hmm. who you are yeah um but we're definitely not connecting those dots elsewhere in in the world i don't think
0: Mm -hmm yeah it's very interesting and so lastly then so for for anyone that like might be struggling right now you know with mm-hmm. um things starting to because i know like with things starting to open back up like i've spoken yeah. to a few people recently they felt like very like anxious about that and like very yeah uneasy about it all um mm. like what what Bit of advice would you would you give to someone sort of fit, you know in that place or um, yeah not really sure where to turn in in that okay. sort of situation.
1: I think the first thing to say is that it's good that people are acknowledging that that's how they feel. Um, You know, As many years of experience as I've got, I feel the same about the world opening up. There is trepidation for me and I feel worried Mm -hmm. about what the world looks like now. But it's absolutely 100% normal to feel those ways, that our lives have been really different for the last 18 months and they continue to be different. Mm -hmm. It's acknowledging that that's a shared experience and that's not to minimise that for that individual but that is a shared experience some people are going to love it some people are going to hate it Mm. it's about thinking about what you're worried about in terms of the differences what do you what can you manage versus what you can't manage and always think about what you can manage first in your own little world you know Mm -hmm. because you can't you can't operate you can't change the bigger world around you on your own when you're feeling this way so think about the things you can manage think about the things that you're doing well think about the things that you want to improve and do better think about um who you who in your world you can trust and talk to about these things Um, and if you can't if you don't have that particular person or those people around you, think about where you can get that help and that guidance from. There's lots of places that you can go to that are anonymous. There's lots of things you can do. Um, you can ring people. You can ring Samaritans. And if it's something you just want to get off your chest, you feel this anxiety or you feel this, you know, pent up aggression or you feel unsure, unsure or uncertain, you can ring the Samaritans and, and offload and vent. They're mm-hmm. not going to give you advice, but they'll listen to you. Mm-hmm if you're feeling hopeless you're feeling that you don't want to go on or you're feeling suicidal it's important that you communicate that with somebody and it's in, the the response is even more important if somebody tells you they're not coping and wants to end their life you don't catastrophize it which is really difficult that you listen you don't ask why you don't say things like you've got a lot to live for you've got kids you've got this you've got that because that then creates guilt mm-hmm. that you say you ask them if they have a plan if they have a means you ask them if they want you to intervene if they're telling you because they want you to stop them invariably when someone tells you it is because they want you to stop them Mm -hmm. if people don't tell you it's because they're going to go ahead with it but that you take away the means and that you get them the right support and the right support could either be from the gp or it could be from there are any number of um, crisis support numbers through the nhs that can help signpost Um, there are also several organizations that look at people with suicidal behaviour or people who've been bereaved by suicide but it's important to acknowledge that um, if you're feeling anxious about change and you're feeling anxious about the world that those things are completely normal given the context that we're living in at the moment and that you tell somebody mm-hmm. and if you don't tell somebody you start to think about the world that you can change with for yourself and just to think about what you're doing well and what you need to improve on so it's about it's about realizing that everybody feels a similar way, but also that it's okay to feel that way. And that's perfectly normal, but you've got to think about how you're going to get out of it. And if that's, if that's going to the GP, if it's going to a friend and often talking about it, you do feel better, Mm. but it's about who you're talking to and, and not getting lip service people saying what you want to hear you know you need you need people that are going to challenge some of those things and say well you can do it you've done it before Mm -hmm. think about how you got out of this situation none of us have ever been in this situation so sometimes people aren't going to know what to say but it's about often it's about listening Mm -hmm. I think for those other people but um, definitely being okay with understanding that the world is upside down yeah. and inside out and that that's a shared experience and you're not yeah. alone in that no one's alone in that you know I'm terrified of going back to work I, mm-hmm. I am you know and I was terrified of working from home and now I'm like oh I've got to go in yeah. so I'm you know I think everybody's got a sense of that but yeah you know for people who are suicidal it's important that you listen and mm-hmm. don't start reeling off reasons to live because that creates guilt for that person so mm-hmm. yeah on a very basic level just acknowledge it just acknowledge that that's how you feel and once you sit with it for a bit yeah yeah you can you can get yourself out of it yeah. with the right support
0: yeah definitely I find that helps a lot actually I find um like if I just feel a bit overwhelmed about something or a bit unsure mm-hmm. about something like either talking to someone or like even journaling like just journ- like yeah. writing getting my thoughts down like just yeah. helps so much um because almost you can just overthink things, can't you? And you can almost like build them up in your head, so they're so oh, much God. bigger than than they actually are, kind of
1: thing. Um, I, I am a huge overthinker. I'm a huge catastrophizer. I'm a huge worst case scenario person, and I. I'm, you know, I'm not ashamed. I've got OCD, so I have intrusive thoughts. um, And I I can worry myself into a situation that's not even happened yet. Mm -hmm. So I find getting outside, walking and walking that off because a lot of it is to do with nervous energy Mm because I've also got Mm -hmm. attention deficit. So I find that when I start to have these intrusive thoughts or start to feel out of control and that is often I just get out and I walk it out Mm -hmm. you know but that isn't going to work for everybody like you say journaling and writing things down and I often write emails to myself just to get it out yeah yeah that's a great idea and then I can I can look back at it and go okay gosh you were really in a bad place then Mm -hmm. weren't you but I'm not sending Mm -hmm. it to anybody else you know I'm just saying it to myself yeah
0: yeah absolutely
1: none of us are immune and I think that's really important to mm. say none of us are immune from these feelings of being over, you know being overwhelmed or overthinking and I think that's really important I'm really honest about the stuff I have going on because I think that's it, it's an essential thing because I think when you're telling people how to cope in life or teaching people how to cope or nursing people it's really good to to humanize yourself within mm-hmm, that and say
0: definitely.
1: look I struggle with this yeah it's not the same as you but it's hard isn't it mm-hmm. you know Mm-hmm. we're discouraged from doing that generally but I I don't really play by the rules
0: <laughs> no no that's such a good idea it, it, it could probably put them so much more at ease as well and, and make them feel you know like you, that's resonate sort of thing you know and, and relate um which is so important I think like almost yeah I, th- I feel like half of it is or most of it is um, the fact that it's almost like, oh, you're here and we're here, kind of thing, you know, and yeah, it's almost yeah. like not having it's that power. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's power. Um, you put a
1: uniform on. You've got the keys to the clinic, the keys to their bedroom, the keys to the front door. They can't get out. You have power, whether mm. you like it or not. And I hate that. You know, there's power power differentials are are the barriers to people actually getting help a lot of mm. the time.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah, almost just humanizing the whole thing and like yeah just talking and mm-hmm. yeah voicing it and, and listening to others i think yeah that's that's awesome um but yeah thank you so much thank you so much for thank you for having on me the chat um yeah it's been, thank you. Im- it's been massively great. insightful from from my perspective i've learned a lot um okay cool. so yeah thank you so much <laughs> thank you thank you for listening to this episode if you enjoyed it please subscribe and for more content check out our instagram i'll see you on the next one